Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's the Wonky Show. Immigration figures are out. We'll consider the fallout from that. Rishi Sunak has been trying to reset relations with China. We'll think about what that means for the sector. Plus, Pitez raises questions about expansion. And Hisa is helping us understand brain drain. It's all coming up. I don't think, as, as, as so often in government, I don't think it's the case that there's some sort of clever Machiavellian 4D chess going on, whereby people are, are contriving with an expansion in student visas because... We sort of know or suspect that some of them are switching across to, to shortages in the public sector. I think there's two things going on. Welcome back to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm your host, Jim Dickinson, and here to twist again like they did last summer, as usual, three top-flight guests. Uh, in sunny Sirencester, Lucy Van Essen-Fishman is lead policy and research analyst in data and innovation at HESA. Lucy, your highlight of the week, please. Well, my highlight of the week actually is one of the topics for today's show. Some colleagues of mine on Tuesday released a new graduate mobility marker that looks at where graduates go after graduation in terms of where they lived before they started their studies. And it looks at it at the local authority level, so we get a lot more granular detail about graduate mobility, and it's really exciting. Well, we'll come to that. Um, And in foggy Westminster this morning, Jonathan Simmons is partner and head of education practice at Public First. Jonathan, your highlight of the week, please. Uh, Morning, Jim. Yeah, I think my highlight of the week is uh, we've got yet another round of discussions about private schools and the education system. Uh, But for once, it's not related to questions about which of them go to university. So it's nice for the EHE sector to simply look on at this uh, this, uh, this row rather than be in the middle of it. Now, I mean, mean, just before we we move to Michael, I'm interested in your theory on this, Jonathan. do, Do you think this was pushed by Starmer as a differentiator or do you think it was pushed by Sunak and now he's regretting it? Uh, it was pushed by it was pushed by the Tories, it was pushed by Hunt and, and Sunak, I mean Labour have been going on about this for about two years and nobody I think apart from me noticed, uh, but it's yeah so it's definitely it's definitely something the government has, has pushed and I'm not sure if they do regret it but it's definitely become a big deal Fascinating, and in uh, Oxford this morning Michael Salmon is news editor at Wonky, Michael your highlight of the week please uh, We put up our Christmas tree this uh, yesterday Jim which was a very early, but I have a three-year-old who's very excited about Christmas. And at this point in December, his excitement is um, nice rather than infuriating. We'll yes, see how that progresses. It was my birthday this week. So so it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas because it always feels like Christmas as soon as my birthday's over. So there we go. So yes, we start this week with international students. ONS has new net migration figures and they sound like a lot, Michael. Well, that's right, Jim. Um, you know, we had a lot of statistics came out, both from ONS and from the Home Office and the numbers of international students have really boomed. Um, You know, there were sort of these headlines about a net migration reaching half a million people, you know, specifically driven by students to some extent. Um, we had um, student visa issuance up to above 400,000 and, you know, we're not really through the year yet. Um, the target was three or, or sort of the prediction was 300,000. Um, you know, so what we didn't get, unfortunately, was a big celebration of the sector's you know, role in boosting the, the UK's balance of payments and improving our international standing on the world stage. Um, rather, we had number 10 floating the idea that maybe we'll be cracking down on student dependents, looking at low quality degrees. Basically, the same idea we heard from one of our other the recent Conservative administrations back in September. Um, and, you know, the sector clapped back quite effectively. I think it was a very busy day in UK's press office. Um, what's a bit different this time is, you know, we do have all these statistics to play with. Um, and so on the site, um, we've been covering what gets missed out sometimes if we if we see the debate in quite simplistic terms, just about whether international students are a good thing or not. You know, there are some causes for concern we can see in the data, you know, as recruitment has boomed, um, patterns about where students are coming from have shifted. 
um, you know, there are people asking questions, not least yourself, um, about whether the sector was really prepared on issues like accommodation, childcare, student re uh, student support, retention. Um, as we get more students from from different destinations, um, we've we've now seen students from India surpass China for the first time. But there's also a huge rise in in the number of students with, that the sector is recruiting from um, Nigeria. And uh, yeah, I imagine you're going to want us to get into all of those details. Well, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, Jonathan, I, I, I you know, I, I am a fully paid up member of the kind of centrist dad club. You're not. And, but also, I like to think of myself as a fully paid up member of the Anywheres Rather Than Somewheres club. That said, 504,000 in a year net migration that i mean even i raised my eyebrows i mean it does sound like a lot doesn't it in a population of say 60 million or whatever it is you know it it, it does sound a lot i think it's worth noting that at least some of that is a, is a temporary blip only so the uk government has consciously agreed to bring a lot of hong kongers over here that number is is in the 504,000 and won't stay that high uh, similarly, the Ukrainians that have been brought over here, again, as a conscious choice of the government, that is a, is a blip in some senses, and that won't stay that high. Um, but the student number is, is, is very high. And I think the key thing that really needs disaggregating in this debate is how many of them come, how many stay, how many need various supports from the public sector, and is that, is that cost covered? And of course, we know in the aggregate, it's, it's more than covered. So we know that students pay a contribution towards the NHS through their visa. We know that they've got pretty limited recourse on public funds generally. And we know that in the aggregate, thanks to the work that London Economics did with UUKI, that there's a net gain to the economy. I think, as with so many of the migration debates, one of the reasons this gets, this gets tricky is that that aggregate gain doesn't find its way down to local communities. So where, where is that 28.8 billion gain manifesting itself? Is it manifesting itself in universities' bank accounts? I mean, quite a lot, yes, is the honest answer. But is it actually supporting expansion of housing? Is it supporting expansion of public services? Is it supporting expansion of transport? You know, if you go way back when to the sort of uh, sort of early, early 2000s, when Labour started to get themselves in real difficulties, government with immigration and the Conservatives started to make real electoral gain on it, there was a lot of focus on trying to take these aggregate economic figures and turn them into tangible benefits in you know towns and, and communities up and down the country and I, I think we might need to get back to that space again because the truth is nobody really knows what 28.8 billion in the aggregate means and if you can't see it in your community you simply don't believe that figure and that's where universities risk getting out of step with popular narrative and, and and just on that that just on that jonathan i have read research that says look you know if you expand at a certain pace what happens is you end up with more housing and more infrastructure and that creates jobs and you know there is a for want of a better phrase trickle down effect but if you go too fast what you do is you you, you just heat up prices in the housing market and you push people further away, away from cities now there's there, there's potentially a question here about pace isn't there i think there, there, there absolutely is a question about pace and there's a question about sustainability and then there's a question about deliverability for want of a better word so yes you're right if you suddenly put a thousand people or two thousand people or five thousand extra people in an average town you can't suddenly click your fingers and create houses for them you, you just boost up prices and people get pushed out if you if you believe as a developer, if you believe as a local council that you're going to have a sustained population increase, that's when people start to, to build additional public services. Um, you know, in, in one of my other in one of my other worlds, one of the things I do is I help councils sort of project population increases and think about new schools that need to be built and how that needs to get done. And, and you know, it's a complicated process, but particularly on housing. And, and you know, I, I, I vaguely recall someone having written an awful lot about this, but on housing, it's just quite difficult to increase supply, even if you wanted to, even if you recognise that systemically across Plymouth, there's going to be an extra need for 2,000, 3,000, 5,000 beds a year. It's actually quite hard to do that, even if you know as a council in the university, that's what's needed. Yes, particularly then when you've suddenly got, a, I don't know, if people end up living further out from the city, they've got to get on the bus. And I've noticed there's a bus driver shortage here in Plymouth, where I'm recording today. And there's so many knock-on impacts, aren't there, in, in kind of civic terms. Lucy, one of the things I, 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 that I was kind of experiencing late last week when I was looking at some of the data, particularly the Home Office data that came out on the same day in detail, was we do know more than the debate on perhaps Twitter suggests. But we still don't know enough, really. And it's quite frustrating that there are kind of huge kind of data gaps in terms of what we know about where people are coming from and what they go on to do and so on. Yes, that's and one of the things that's interesting about this data on expansion of numbers, which is mentioned, is that there's a possibility that some of this is also a knock on from the pandemic, that we've got a number 
a large number of international students who st enrolled with UK institutions and started their degrees in their home countries because travel was either complicated or prohibited. And some of these students are only now arriving, but we don't know how many of them that's the case for, and we don't know how long that effect's going to last. Part of this is sort of a bit of a hangover in the HESA data, where the additional guidance that we gave to providers for the sake of making data collection during a pandemic possible means that we can't differentiate between students who were studying remotely because of the pandemic and students who weren't. So, the location of study variable remains the location of intended study, not the location of actual study. And that was, you know, we're all aware that that was a trade-off that we had to make because providers just didn't know the location of actual study at all points in the year as the situation kept changing. So we don't necessarily, when we look at the pandemic era data, know where students were in actual fact. This is also true for the term time accommodation data, where we providers gave us the best information they had at the time, but some of that data either was out of date or was correct at the time it was given us, but didn't stay that way for the whole year. So yes, it's frustrating. But I mean, e even even if we were to kind of have our, you know, even if the pandemic hadn't happened, one of the things that strikes me is when I look at the sort of home office data, which is, you know, in terms of vis visas issued, there's all sorts of things that I don't know. So I don't know which universities they're enrolling on. I don't know whether they've got a P, you know, don't know whether they're going to do a PGT course or a PGR course or an undergraduate course or whatever. And it takes a while then for kind of equivalent numbers to kind of feed through via universities, doesn't it? Shouldn't there be, in your ideal world, would there be a kind of, you know, everyone would be round a round table and we could join all this up so we could have a much better un understanding of what's happening in real time? That would be really nice. And of course, he is moving towards you know, closer to real time data as we go on with the data futures collection. But I think it's, you know, there do become questions about you know, whose data should be in whose whose hands. It would be really nice for all of the sector-wide you know, immigration data to be nicely folded in with the education data. But you know, as a former international student, I'm also not entirely sure about how I feel about my visa status being attached to my student record. You know, it obviously had to be for the sake of my university. But it does seem like it's a somewhat different category of data, and we'd have to do a lot of careful thinking about whether we felt that this should be part of the student record. Sure, sure, sure. My, my, Michael, you, you, you will know that one of the things that I was doing on uh, Monday was working out the, um, you know, the number of dependents that students bring in from different countries. And, you know, I think the stark stats that I pulled out was if you round to two decimal points, the average number of dependents that a student from China brings in is zero. And if you round to two decimal points from Nigeria, it's 0 0.9. Now, you know, I have a view on this, which is that's fantastic. And we should have the infrastructure that supports students with families from Nigeria area to study here but the danger is that we don't isn't it yeah absolutely um and i start by saying i you know i very much share your view um and i am quite concerned about really what life is going to be like in the uk for students who are arriving with kids i mean we've heard a lot in the last decade about you know for home students as well for all students that university childcare sort of systems as well as local childcare is really in crisis at the moment you know so this you know even without this big expansion in numbers this was already an issue i mean on the question of nigeria i do think it's very interesting i've i've been in the last maybe 5 years i've spoken to many many people in international teams in recruitment in marketing and nigeria has so often come up as this is a destination we should be targeting. This is the next but one. You know, we, we've done China. Um, we're moving on to India. Nigeria is the next one. The UK needs to be competitive here. I don't think the question of childcare ever came up in, in any of the conversations I've been in. Um, I don't know whether... Um, you know, people in the sector making decisions about, right, let's really target this destination, had been thinking it through, whether there were sort of local strategies in place, but definitely at the at the wider sector level, it seems like there was something lacking there. Now, now Jonathan, you know, the, the, the specific thing about Nigeria that will be on the site by the time the podcast goes out is that there's a there's a huge movement across Nigeria called JAPA, um, which, is, which is a word that means to kind of flee and to improve one's life and, and, and so 
on. So, and, and the sense is that there's a kind of movement here that is really about economic migration. And, and, and a student officer from Nigeria said something extraordinary to me this week, which was the UK university sector might not think that it's selling economic migration, but that's what we think we're buying. Now, <laughs> I think that's a remarkable sentence, partly because there's also a piece on Pi News this week that says, look, large numbers of students are quite legitimately switching to the skilled uh, visa route in order to go and staff our care homes. And, you know, I've got the Today programme on this morning, which is saying there's a crisis in the NHS because people can't move into the care sector. Now, is it the case, do you reckon, that somewhere in government people are thinking, this is all fine, it's just we can't say it's fine for fear of, you know, losing our Red Wall electorate? Is, is, there a, is there a kind of weird silence around, you know, immigration actually solving some of our problems, but us not wanting to say that out loud as a country? So, so yes, yes and no. So I don't think... As, as, as so often in government. I don't think it's the case that there's some sort of clever Machiavellian 4D chess going on, whereby people are, are contriving with an expansion in student visas because we sort of know or suspect that some of them are switching across to, to shortages in the public sector. I think there's two things going on. One is that I think there absolutely is a recognition in government that, for better or worse, and, and I personally think it's for the better, uh, international students are cross-subsidising and propping up a lot of universities, and that uh, you know the majority of opinion in government outside the Home Office, I think, is more or less happy for that to continue. The second issue is that is that, yes, quietly, government is quite happy to open up specific visa schemes in the short or the longer term for shortage areas. So, you know, in areas as, as uh, if you recall, the sort of the, the fuss last year about are we going to have pigs in blankets for Christmas? There was a very specific kind of visa scheme opened up to allow butchers to come across, right, and and, and slaughter pigs. Um, that is the kind of thing which government is quite keen to do. So rather than having mass liberal with a small L migration, you sort of target it very specifically at HGV drivers or pork butchers and the like, and, and definitely care workers and NHS workers would fit in that category of people that actually were quite keen to come in. I do do think, though, that the the issue raised about Nigeria in particular is a really, really interesting one. And for better or worse, the British people has a ranking system of good immigrants and bad immigrants. And I'm afraid that Nigeria comes pretty close towards the bottom of bad immigrants. And I have a, a, a niggling feeling at the back of my mind that if we think that the sector is losing political discourse because it's bringing over a large number of Indian and Chinese students, if in five years' time that's replaced with large numbers of Nigerian students, I worry that the, the, the optics, even though the numbers might be the same, the optics are potentially even more challenging. Yes, and, and, and Lucy, this is partly, but this is partly it, isn't it? Because if you know, you know, the sector has some agency here. It's not like you know, it has no choices in terms of what it's doing. Although there is a difficult economic circumstance, and so if the sector is partly responsible for bringing students to the UK, there is something here, isn't there, about managing integration in 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 geographical areas you know that being responsible for and thinking through some of those community tensions that might flare up which would not be those students full and which nobody really wants and so but you do have to plan for yes i i think it gets obviously very tricky in terms of what and how universities can you know, what universities can do and how they can figure out how to help support the integration of their students into communities. But this is, I think, you know, partly an immigrant question, but partly a broader question about universities as members of society, that you know, we've been hearing things about tensions between town and gown, between universities and their towns for much longer than we've been talking about rampant student integration, immigration, sorry. And I think there's a general duty on universities, or at least there should be, to think very carefully about their roles within their locations. Think, you know, what can we do to make our our students not just this bubble of possibly unruly young people who have different priorities in their lives and use different parts of the city infrastructure than the local residents do? What can we do by way of outreach? What can we do about... You know, visibility of the things that our students and our teaching staff do for the town more widely. How can we support development of infrastructure that's housing, but also supporting transit system? I think that's a a question that goes beyond the immigrant students question. It's just that the immigrants end up being more visible and a more obviously foreign presence in a town. Excellent. So, uh, great stuff, folks. Um, Lots more coverage on the site on all this. Do have a look in the show notes. Now, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Universities have got back 
to operating as quote-unquote normal. But the reality is COVID hasn't gone away. Um, and what my own campus uh, in, in Durham and many of the campuses have seen since the start of the new term, there's been a wave of staff absences, uh, students being missing from classes, um, students coming in coughing. Uh, and what this all really underlines is that we're seeing the normalization of COVID and really the COVID university. And senior leadership in universities are essentially hiding behind guidance from Public Health England, from the government uh, and, health and, and the health and safety executive, which is totally inadequate and completely uh, underestimates the risk to staff and to students. Uh, and what we have now is a situation where staff and students will be exposed to multiple exposures, multiple waves of COVID with the massive risk to health that that involves, both in terms of long COVID, other health complications that are associated with COVID-19. And that has implications for people's well-being, for people's health, but it also has logistic implications, which universities, as, sens as you would hope, sensible employers that base their work on science, on knowledge, on research, would take seriously but frank quite frankly at the moment that is not happening and that is only going to lead to the build-up of health problems and to the build-up frankly of, of a, a university which i don't think people should have to work and learn in now next up this week uh rishi sunak has given a big speech on china protests have swept the country over its zero covid policy and we've been thinking about the sector's relationship with china in some detail lucy right so on monday rishi sunak was at the lord mayor's banquet and almost as if he'd been following all of the wonky coverage on china over the last few days that's why he did he it <laughs> right i say it's very convenient he brought up the relationship with China as one of his three main points. It sat between the ongoing commitment to Ukraine and the need to build partnerships in the Indo-Pacific. So right, China was right there in the middle as a big chunky point. And Sunak does some sort of complicated triangulation about the relationship with China. And I haven't yet made up my mind about whether there is much of substance there really. You know, on the one hand, he says that the golden era of UK-Chinese relationships is over. We can't assume that global trade will bring about political and social reform in China. You know, that, he says, is naive. At the same time, he says that China poses a systemic challenge to the UK's values and interests. That's pretty much a direct quote. You know, this is a softer line on China than what we were led to expect from a trust, gov a trust government, but you know, systemic challenge to values and interests is still, those are pretty strong words about a large global economy. Sunak says that his goal is to take a longer term view, you know, think about China as a competitor and to stand up to them. But he says he's going to do this, quote, not with grand rhetoric, but with robust pragmatism. What that means is, I'm afraid, not clear. So, as we unpick this, you know, we are, we're obviously thinking about what this means for the higher education sector. And you know, on the one hand, Sunak didn't, as Truss was widely expected to, label China as a threat. So this may calm down some panic that there's going to be a push for universities to immediately think hard about either disengaging with China or reducing reliance on China. But it's also, I think, you know, it's not such a great softening of view as all that. You know, and as we mentioned a little bit in the immigration sector of the show, you know, Chinese students are a huge portion of the higher education sector. There was a bit of a dip in enrollment in 1920 the 1920 academic year, but we still see very, very large numbers of Chinese students, you know, that, including 35% of all full-time postgraduate taught students in the UK. So this is a huge portion of the student body, particularly apparent in research-intensive universities in the Russell Group. A lot of Chinese undergraduates we know go on to further study in the UK, but we also know that by and large, after completing postgraduate degrees, most Chinese students don't stay in the UK. So this is probably more solidly in the category of temporary immigration than some other student immigration. 
As well as student numbers, we see the impact of China in research collaborations. UKRI says that their Beijing office has fostered collaborations worth £360 million. So that's, that's a big deal in terms of research and innovation. If anything happens that puts pressure on universities to reduce their reliance on China, both in terms of research and innovation and in terms of student numbers, this is going to be really complicated. So it's all a little bit unclear in terms of how much has changed whether Sunak's speech represents a real change in stance. But I think it's probably a somewhat uneasy time to think about being either a Chinese student at a UK university or someone considering studying at a UK university. We certainly hope that many Chinese students will continue to come and we know we're pretty sure that they will. But I, I think we need to also think about what we do to make it clear that Chinese students are still welcome, that we can distinguish between the students themselves and whatever is going on in the geopolitical sense, you know, that this isn't about individual students if the UK is taking a stronger line. You know, students still have their goals, their aspirations, and we need to make sure that the sector can support them. Yes, in, in, interesting. M M Michael, you've, uh, you know, you, you, you had your eye across uh, the, the, the collection of pieces that we've run this week on on, on China. What, is it, what's your sense of this? Is, it your, is your sense that this is... You know, this is about mood music for backbenchers who are, <clears throat> you know, kind of suspicious of China, a little sinophobic. Or, or is something real happening here in various departments to kind of toughen up our, um, a, a, you know, I guess what Sunak would call a kind of healthy and pragmatic suspicion of the agenda of the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese state? Well, I think it's both. Um, I think the mood, mu mood music aspect of it really can't be discounted. Um, but there are certain things going on that are going to happen um, and also that have already happened that are sort of increasing the pressure and increasing complications. You know, for example, we have, um, you know, we've had various Chinese academics and students rejected or suffering big delays. ATAS, which is um, academic technology approval scheme that's all under the Home Office, um, you know, rather than um, Bayes or, or Department for Education. So, you know, there are lots of other areas of government looking at this. Um, you know, I... The one thing that really strikes me and it's, it kind of relates to what Lucy said, um, you know, this this question of, um, you know, what's the sector doing to support Chinese students and what will what's it planning to do if these diplomatic tensions do get worse? Um, you know, I think there has been and we've touched on this already. There's been a sense within the sector that Chinese students are a kind of model minority and in, in, to use the sort of American term, you know, they have their dependence at 0, 0.00 to two significant figures. Their course feedback um, tends to be very positive compared to other groups. Their graduate outcomes not really being measured. Um, they're, they're kind of comfortable paying higher level fees. I mean, I, I say this advisedly, I'm very aware myself of the enormous sacrifices that families in China are making to send their, their, their children and grandchildren to, to study in the UK. But, you know, they are coming in at higher tariff, research intensive and higher fee paying university. You know, and the other point I'd like to make along along with what Lucy says is we also need to be thinking about staff in the in the sector with connections to China you know either Chinese nationality or who have you know who have who are now British but have a background or have family connections to China you know there really are a lot and and a few, more than one has reached out to me since we put our piece up on Monday saying that there's something they're worried about you know what is the position of the the thousands or possibly tens of thousands of staff with connections to China if we do see a real worsening of diplomatic relations it's, it's it's a big question and i hope people are thinking through how we're going to support staff um you know to ensure that they feel welcome ensure that they feel supported kind of in the same way that we saw with brexit um and that you know this there was a real um you know outpouring of of support for staff from you know from from elsewhere in europe and i'd like to think that something similar would happen with china if if tension and and sort of geopolitics do begin to really complicate that relationship jonathan one thing that does strike me is in you know if you think about say um health 
One of the things that we sort of do is we expect universities to be able to kind of do lots of things that, you know, would be done by the NHS for everyone else in society. And to some extent, if you think about the kind of influence of external, you know, global countries, we, do, we, we put these responsibilities onto academics and universities to, you know, have values and to resist being manipulated and all of that kind of stuff. And, and my sense is that what backbenchers then do is look at that and go, I'm not sure that I'm not sure they're up to it. So we're going to try and, you know, pass laws or amendments to bills that, that, that kind of strengthen the hand of the security services or whatever it might be. And we never really seem to get at what the actual problem might be aside from the odd select committee report from sceptical MPs. And and that's, you know, that, that, that line between what we expect universities and academics and to some extent even student unions do and what we expect the state to do is really... Yeah, it absolutely is blurred. And and I think, uh, look, the honest truth is that this is, this is almost too big a question for the British state to answer. And actually, I really liked Rishi Sunak's line about robust pragmatism because, in a sense, it, it's supremely arrogant to think that the British state can have a position on China when the truth is that the reverse is true. You know, what China decides its relationship with Britain will be will will be the dominant factor. If China decides it doesn't want to send students to UK, it could stop that almost overnight, regardless of how welcoming we were. Um, and, and in a sense, we have to recognise the sort of, I mean, not to be all sort of international relations lecturer about this, but you have to recognise the power imbalances here. And you know, we have had a complicated relationship with China over the last, well, long, long time. And in the last 10 years, we've steadily got more and more sceptical, both in the higher education sector and in trade and in uh, investment and, and, and all sorts of things. But, but yes, the fact that we have a, a complicated view as to, you know, should it be universities that check up on these things? Should it be the state that checks up on these things? Should it be landlords that check up? Should it be the home office? The honest truth is that we, 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 we as a country keep on changing our mind and we, 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 we tack in different directions depending on which one we think we need to do. And that is because fundamentally, you can't have a single policy towards the world's second or third largest economy, which may very shortly become the world's largest economy, and almost certainly, you know, one of the two global, global hegemons in the 21st century. It, it, it's like me deciding that I would like to have a policy on what the weather's like in Westminster, right? <laughs> I can say all the nice things I want, but it fundamentally is not going to change what will actually happen. <laughs> and you can bring an umbrella, but yeah, yeah. No, yeah. yeah. Um, but I mean, Lucy, this is interesting, isn't it? So if you take both this item and the kind of first item, you know, one of the, thing, one of the things the sector tells itself, this was all over Twitter on Friday, is that... You you know, the odd international student comes into the UK, has a cup of English breakfast tea, goes to see the Queen, and then it, and then takes British values back all around the world. This kind of import of British values, imperialism that kind of spreads back around the world. But it's nowhere near that simple, is it? And and you know, we should probably have a more sophisticated understanding of that kind of you know way in which values interact and transmit, shouldn't we? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think you know, one thing that's clear is you know, that we know about students is that students do. People generally, this isn't a student thing, people do find groups of other people who they feel are to somewhat, some extent or on, on whatever axes matter to them like them. So within universities, we don't just have foreign students you know, going out and drinking English breakfast tea. We also have foreign students you know, going to you know, the American Students Society. I assume there was an American Students Society. I never found one and never looked for one. But going to whatever sort of group of students come you know, groups of students from individual countries will often come together so that they can support each other, provide some sense of familiarity and home in a foreign place. And that won't be the whole social world for these students, but for many students, it is an important part of their experience. So you end up with these bubbles within universities of students from one place or another, and those bubbles aren't self-contained. They also you know, do events that students and people from the community more widely attend. So there is outreach there. There is cultural exchange, but it's it's complicated. And in some ways, you know, I've found that certain parts of my identity as a foreigner have dug in more and more the longer I live in the UK. You know, I never thought about myself as having a particular sense of my Americanness, but suddenly, when I have li lived in the UK for twelve years and have largely British family. There are some things that start mattering to me a great deal, like using the word garbage instead of rubbish. So, <laughs> yeah. 
we don't all just become British by enrolling in, on postgraduate courses or undergraduate courses. Yes, and you don't magically then turn everyone else British if you happen to leave the country after your course, yes. Uh, look, fascinating stuff, folks. Uh, lots more on this uh, on the site. It's a busy week. If you haven't had a chance to kind of dip into the, to the stuff we published on Monday, do have a look at the links in the show notes. Now, uh, time to look back at how things were and how things came to be. Academic registrar and sector historian Mike Ratcliffe is here with the hidden history of HE. Yeah, so one of the things that Nick Hillman has um, talked about is how we have a boarding school tradition in English higher education. So what is it that has made England, uh, and it's England rather than Scotland, uh, adopt this particular residential model? Now, obviously, this is deep in our history, um, but and, and most of it is just an accident, but it becomes an accident that becomes enshrined in policy. Oxford and Cambridge start off on their course to becoming the great universities that they are um, by wanting to be quite a long way away from the king and his courts and the bishop and their authority. So they're quite happy being in small towns, uh, relatively well connected, but not so connected so that the person in charge of them can be, be there all the time. So that's a benefit to both those two universities and a benefit that they're not in a major city. Now, England only has one major city, but neither of those two universities are in London. Um, and it's quite clear that, that that's that's fine. So they set off in that model. And therefore, it's quite clear that if they are national universities, and as we've discussed before, they're quite good at killing off other people's attempts to have universities, um, then everyone has to travel to those universities. And they set up a term system so that you're only there for eight weeks, and then you can go home again. And uh, whether or not we believe that people really went home in the summer to do the harvest. But the, the, the time you were there, you were in residence, um, either uh, in one of the colleges or in a hall, and therefore you you had a, a kind of wraparound experience in terms of somebody looking after you the whole time, and that was part of the education that was on offer. So we ended up with this situation. That that's that's a good thing, and that provides quite a strong uh, basis for uh, continuing education. Now, the commuter universities that come in the uh, 19th century push against that, places like UCL and later uh, Manchester and Leeds and Liverpool... Uh, they might have small numbers of halls of residence, but they generally, uh, most of their students are commuting. Most of their students are coming in every day. But by the time we get after the um, First World War, there are two new bodies with a view on how higher education should be best organised. The new University Grants Committee um, is con um, constructed of, of uh, the great and the good who come together and, and think deep thoughts about higher education should best be organised. They think residence is, is the best way of organising a higher education institution. And the other new body that has a view on these things is the National Union of Students. And it's the National Union of Students who also makes quite a lot of the running on residential life is best. And there are lots of reports written and, and snarky books about how the life of the commuting student is, is nothing like the life of the residential student. The residential student can go to debate and have dinners and, and live that kind of much broader, richer life. Uh, and lots of reports saying how sad it is um, that uh, commuting students don't get to do that. And this is put into play in, in UGC action. The only university that UGC allowed to become a university between the wars is Reading. Reading has a very firm commitment to residence. Uh, it's much more unlike any of the other university colleges. It's very committed. Uh, it's, it's sponsored by Oxford. It's very committed to having a residential experience. And so it's the only one that gets through. So we get to the 50s. Uh, we're dealing with expansion of higher education. And there's a clear attempt to say the residential model is much better. Keel has started off on a residential model, but there's a, a, a grand committee uh, chaired by Niblet uh, that comes together and says, look, this is, this is where we should be going. We want to avoid the nine to five mentality, which is the great enemy of university education. Um, and therefore, the UGC committed to provide capital funds to build residences. So this is great because, of course, um, one of the things it tried to do was set out clear specifications. You couldn't build grander halls of residence uh, than the UGC would give you money for. You had to build them. So if you um, spend your time uh, trolling around the country going to 1950s and 60s halls of residence, you will find the square meterage 
is pretty much the same everywhere you go. The same little basin in the corner of the room, uh, the same wardrobe, uh, the same vanishingly small bed on which to sleep. You can't build bigger than the UGC will give you money for, even if you've actually got the cash to do it. So there's a, a, a grand specification. And this comes from a very egalitarian sense. Everyone gets the same kind of accommodation. And those universities that um, have got different kinds of accommodation have to deal with this. One of the reasons that some of those universities got great accommodation is that uh, in the 17th and 18th century, uh, one of the ways that Oxford and Cambridge tried to attract better off students was by building small palaces for them to live in. So if you go around and you look at some of the great buildings that you know we all buy postcards of, it's because they built buildings to look like the palaces uh, and great country houses that they, these uh, uh, sons of the gentry had come out of. And so they built them to make you know, very familiar, you know, the same kind of panelling, the same kind of high rooms, the same kind of you know, um, classical architecture. But there's a sense that we should have this kind of utilitarian uh, view as we go forward. So we then obviously have uh, the UGC funding these kinds of things. Uh, eventually, when the sector comes together, the polytechnics have a great rush to try and deal with building um, uh, residences, um, as many of which now have to come off uh, the balance sheet because Hefke decides we're not building residences. Mostly, I assume, because um, there's no way they could have afforded to pay for the polytechnics to have all of this stuff and to balance out the sector, and therefore they all come off balance sheet. Now, that's probably a progenitor of another problem, uh, as now we have all these accommodation blocks off residence. We, you know, financing has become problematic. The other thing that's, of course, allowed to happen now is that people are now back in the business, just as they were in the 18th century, of building luxury accommodation blocks. So now we have a wonderful tradition uh, re starting again. Again, that just as um, uh, Dean Aldrich built grand blocks for people uh, to come to Oxford, now they're building grand blocks for people to go to, to London and, and live in swanky things with cinemas and gyms and swimming pools and concierge services and all the rest of these kind of things. So we're, we're kind of back where we were before. So... Um, Howard Silver wrote about this uh, before um, this kind of span off where people were still using PFI rather than just completely outsourcing it. And he was concerned that we we're abandoning a tradition of residences, that we no longer see them in an educational context only as essential for competitive recruitment. And he wrote that in 2007. And I think that's kind of where we are now. So the concern about we've ended up with this residential model, um, but we probably let slip the controls that we once had over it. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Now, next up, Advanced HE's Postgraduate Taught Experience Survey uh, is out. The results are out for the, this year. Uh, Jonathan, what did we learn? Yeah, so this is this is a big survey that's come out uh, from Advanced HE. covers about 80,000 taught postgraduates across uh, almost 100 universities, um, which is about 13% of the total population. And the broad answer is it shows that postgraduates are happier than they used to be. Um, so 82% of uh, respondents said they were pretty satisfied with their course, um, and that's uh, higher than it has been in the last couple of years in the pandemic. I think if you sort of start to break that down, you get some really interesting um, differences by nationality. So home student satisfaction is actually down still compared to 2016. Um, and even though it's peaked up this year, it's lower than it is for India. 
And uh, back to the previous discussion, it's lower than it is for China. So 89.5% of Chinese postgraduates say that they're happy with the experience they're getting. And, and again, this speaks to the, the point we were just discussing, that actually in terms of a, you know, a community that's very happy to turn up, pay large amount of fees and get, get, the, get their course delivery they are, they are given, they're a very, very um, you know, supportive uh, group. I think there's two, two other things which are interesting about the survey and that are worth uh, potentially talking about a little bit. The first of which is obviously postgraduate taught has got a lot bigger. Uh, across the sector for a number of years and uh, one of the things which Advance HE look at is whether people who are in bigger courses are less satisfied and the interesting answer is that no they're not um, there's no statistical relationship between being on a very big course uh, and being more or less satisfied it largely relates to how well planned your courses are the amount of resources you have the way in which you're taught effectively you can have people who are pretty dissatisfied in small courses and pretty satisfied in big courses so some of the nervousness that essentially as universities have, have, have adopted a uh, sort of, you know, stack them high, sell them cheap would lead to poor student satisfaction, I don't think has been borne out. The second thing which I was really staggered by was that um, almost, a, almost a quarter, 22.5% of people who responded to the survey, postgraduate, said that their courses were mostly or completely online in 2022. I found that, I mean, maybe I'm just being naive, I found that incredibly high. If you'd have asked me beforehand, well, I would have guessed 5%, maybe. Um, now, I wonder whether that's skewed towards business courses. I wonder whether it's skewed towards people who are effectively distance learned. They're not registered as such. But it does, it does to me, speak to an issue and, and have all the fuss with undergraduates and online tuition. But if we are charging postgraduate students, including if a large, large sum of money, and the view on many of those institutions is that you can do a large part of this teaching online, maybe students are okay with that. But that strikes me as a very, very high figure, which has the potential to, to, to cause some discontent. Yeah, that's interesting. Now, 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 now Lucy, th 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 let, me, let me ask you a kind of, I don't know, a sort of research design question. <laughs> if, I mean, it's not as simple as this in the report, but let's imagine it was as simple as this, that it appears that international students are just happier. Are they happier? Or, or is there a question with the, is there a problem with the survey design in terms of, you know, the reality is that people don't really know what to expect do they? And so, you know, if people's expectations are very high and, and they're home students, they're going to score the survey in one way. And if international students' expectations are, you know, are, are smashed, they'll score it differently. Or is it that international students are just getting a better experience? Is it the case that across the country, universities are delivering a better experience for international students? That strikes me as unlikely. <laughs> and I think you get into, right, there are survey design questions. I think the question about expectations is a really interesting one. And it would sort of be, I don't know how you would do this in a way that was really practical, but it would be good to have some baseline data about expectations going into a course. You know, we get in this survey some sort of, well, I expected my course to be in person and it was largely online. This is you know, an expectation that hasn't been met. But you know, what you think your expectations were when you look back on your expectations is quite different to say, all right, you're, you're about to start a course. What do you expect to have happen? I don't think that would be practical from a research design perspective, but it would be very interesting data to have. I th so I think it's it is likely that home students will have had slightly more avenues to develop their expectations before starting a course. They are, I'm going to guess, more likely to know other people who've been to the same course. They'll have you know, more possibilities of going and visiting campuses, talking to staff members. You know, and some of that can happen online, of course. But again, from my sample size of one personal experience, I think there was an awful lot that I didn't know before I got on the plane to show up for my postgraduate degree. If Four, however many years ago, 14 years ago or so. And I thought I'd done my homework about the academic side of things, but what actually living at a UK university was going to be like, what kind of you know, structure of contact with my teachers I'd have, what kind of you know, events would be going on in my faculty. A lot of that was a total mystery to me. And you know, my expectations were met partly because I did have a good time as a postgraduate student, but also because I really didn't have very well-formed expectations going in at all. So I think there is something about international students maybe not quite having as much of a sense of what they what they can expect, what they should expect. So if they come through with an essentially good academic experience, 
they may not have a lot of a lot to compare it to about what they thought it should have been like. Yes, in, interesting. I mean, um, Michael, the other thing that that, that I, I was looking at was you know, obviously both in this one and in Perez last week. Um, there's a, there's this in, there's a continued issue with uh, disabled students. But one of the things that I was thinking about this was, in truth, if we think about all the different ways that in which higher education has become, you know, more focused on social mobility and access and participation disabled students students from low socioeconomic backgrounds and so on you know that 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 is that is a home student agenda really and you know it's hard to believe that there are vast numbers of disabled international students or, or very very poor background international students and and so you know if given that we know from all sorts of other triangulation that um, you know, students from disadvantaged backgrounds are more likely to face barriers. It, it may not be a surprise to us, is it, that, you know, that home students, therefore, have got more students that face those barriers and therefore proportionally are less happy in, in, in all sorts of categories. Well, I think that's exactly right. Um, I think that that really speaks to differences in satisfaction levels that you're getting here um, in, in quite a big way, you know, setting aside issues around disability and and sort of the accessibility of UK education for 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 international students with disabilities you know just the general question about sort of socio-economic grouping you know perhaps less so now than it used to be but certainly traditionally when we're talking about international students you know, we are talking about a, you know a fairly elite demographic in the, when we sort of take the um, you know take take the world as a whole and also in terms of when we're comparing them k postgraduates and uk students generally in terms of having you know enough support and enough maintenance enough funds to to sort of survive the year spend their time on the court um you know without needing to work necessarily you know there, there's there's quite sort of set requirements around the the funds that international students need to have with them Obviously, Obviously, many are working. Yes, we're almost but, um, filtering you know, out disadvantage, aren't we, in the immigration rules to some extent? I mean, you know, clearly not, not, not fully. Com- but, yeah. Completely. I, I often wonder whether you know these indicators that you get for sort of Oxford and Cambridge about what's their private school participation, what's their state school participation, whether we should insist that this is made a- across the whole student demographic rather than the um, you know just the home students. Can I just pick up on one of the points that Jonathan was making earlier about the the online, you know, and which sort of speaks to some of my wider concerns with this survey. I mean, this was carried out between February and June. I think it was, you know, different institutions open it at different times. Um, But, you know, back in February 2022, the pandemic really was still raging. And in that... Certainly in Scotland. (laughs) uh, Yeah, I mean, certainly in my house. And, um, you know, a lot of universities were forced to put in sort of emergency measures for their spring term, which would have meant things would go online. And this kind of speaks to my feeling that, you know, everything here is about last academic year a lot of the students surveyed probably you know the vast majority of them are no longer postgraduate but just this week we see so much policy uh, you know and, and and media coverage being floated and made based on what's happening now what's happened in september you know what are people's hunches about what's happened but also with the data that's just coming to come through you know it does make me feel it would be it would be really useful to have a bit more kind of finger on the pulse polling to find out what's actually happening with this cohort. You know, um, Jason did a fantastic article for us looking at, you know, the sectors expanded. Does that correlate with, you know, student satisfaction? Well, the sectors just expanded an awful lot more. PGT has just gotten, uh, you know, a, 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 not <laughs> by the time we work it out, a big step bigger. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So th- there is that question. I think it's partly, you know, a symptom of the fact that NSS doesn't bother to look at the PGT experience. So we're sort of left with with this that Advance HE do. Um, and what we don't have is somebody doing kind of sort of rapid insights into what's happening right now. Now it's time for Get Your Data Right. Here to set this week's salary-based conundrum, it's Wonky's Associate Editor, David Kernahan. Welcome back to this week's Play Your Data Right. Two subject areas that providers, which one has the best median salary? This week, we're looking at median salaries of men and women one year out from graduation in 2018-19. That's the very latest available Leo data. If you've studied logistics at Aston University, your median salary would be £29,300. But if you'd done chemistry at King's College London, would your median salary be higher or lower? Based purely on the fact that very few STEM graduates go into STEM-related occupations, I'm guessing that K-12 
King's chemistry grads are doing relatively lower paid work in like they learn less. Okay, well, I will say that I think King's chemistry students are earning more uh, based on the fact that I wonder whether DK is sort of double bluffing a bit here with the with the sort of institutional reputations and I'm going to I'm going to so I'm going to sort of pin my flag to that hope. Okay, I think I'm going to side with the transport and logistic graduates earning more one year out than the chemistry graduates just thinking that they're more likely to have gone straight from their degrees into work in the field that they've done their degree in there's less likely to be an intervening period of further study as they get higher qualifications they're probably less likely to be doing sort of you know, again relatively low level upskilling within their field so i think they're going to have gone pretty quickly into stable work the answer is lower for chemistry at King's, the median salary was £27,100. Although not many universities offer logistics as an undergraduate degree, I found just two of them in the most recent data. It is a career with a high demand for graduates and, it seems, decent salaries. And for those of you playing along at home, which is the other major provider of logistics undergraduate courses that features in the latest LEO data? That's right, it's the University of Huddersfield. Now, finally this week, HESA has been looking at brain drain. Michael, tell us more. Right, so HESA is developing new data categorizations to just look a lot more precisely um, where exactly students are from um, and where they go after their studies. You know, so previously we had sort of the picture at a regional level and now it's really drilling down in local authority level where students are based um, prior to university and, and and where they go on to work afterwards. And yeah, as you said, Jim, you know, the, the thinking is that this is really going to allow us to say more about the local contribution of graduate, possibly about regional brain drain within the UK but the flip side of that would be you know universities enormous contribution to leveling up there could be more statistical ammunition to make the the case for the local impact of universities it's kind of hard to know um i imagine and we've already seen this a little bit in the in their sort of initial report that there's going to be some quite surprising findings you know what one thing that they, they said was that, you know, 63% of students that we previously classified as returners, you know, people who are going back to their home region, they're actually employed in a different local authority or unitary authority to where they were before. So I think the picture, you know, the more data you get, the the, the messier it gets um, to some extent. And it, there may be some surprises in there as this data categorization method becomes a bit more widely rolled out. Lucy, what do you think are some of the uses we might end up putting to, to, to all of this at, at, at kind of policy level? Because, you know, one of, one of my frustrations is that quite often higher education policy in different forms appears to be kind of place blind. It also just seems to just assume anything could happen anywhere. But some of these some of these issues about place matter, don't they? They do. They matter a great deal. And we see that different regions have different patterns of no- of mobility. We see, you know, interestingly, say quite a lot of people from the east of England. You know, the east of England is the region that has the highest proportion of graduates who move for study and then again for work or also move for study and then stay where they study. And the southeast also has very high proportions of people who end up working in a region that's not the region they grew up in. But those two regions, mostly we see patterns of you know, graduates moving to relatively nearby regions. They don't do long distance regional moves. They move you know, into London, elsewhere in the east of England, elsewhere into the southeast. So we do sort of short relatively short distance regional hops. But elsewhere we see graduates moving somewhat longer distances, moving away for study and then not going back again. This is particularly an issue for Wales and Northern Ireland. So thinking about what we can do, what regions can do and what universities can do to encourage graduates to find work locally to help set up graduate schemes. What's sort of, I think, particularly interesting here is how this fits with the kind of work graduates end up doing and how graduates feel about it as well. That This narrative of going away for university and then coming back home, the graduates who move all the way back home to their own local authority end up scoring less well on our design and nature of work measures. So we might want to think about what kind of options are out there for people coming back home. How do we make that a better transition? 
Yes, fascinating. Um, now, 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 Jonathan, um, where are we in the kind of macro political world on somewheres and anywheres? Leveling up, um, you, you know, skills policy versus HE policy. You know, where is all of that now in terms of, you know, how worried is the political class about, you know, the kind of jog, the bifurcate, you know, the kind of thing that people talk about in America, you know, Democrats are moving to Democrat areas and Republicans to Republican areas, all that stuff, all that stuff. So if I check my notes, I think this week we're in favour of this <laughs> Um, I, I think, I mean, I'm not just saying this because Lucy's on the call, but I, I think this is a fascinating data set. And I think it really does um, take us a lot further down the ability of, of being able to really sort of think about, you know, boomerang students and being in and out and, and, and so on and so forth. And it's absolutely fascinating. I, I, I wouldn't get I wouldn't get too exercised by the fact that 63% don't come back to their home local authority. A lot of local authorities are pretty small. Um, you know, if you go from older and get a degree and you move back to Greater Manchester, but you move to... Tameside or Rochdale, you know that that that's still going back home in in so far. I mean, it's interesting that they might not go to uh, that they might in fact probably move to Manchester City, uh, and, and that tells you quite a lot about sort of within region uh, economic drivers and where people place and, and and sort of divides within that. And so I think that's why it's so fascinating. I mean, my general sense, joking aside, is that this government has 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 always fail to square the circle about whether we should be encouraging talented young people to leave come back to their region because and, and in fact that's you know that is also the case in the region we do focus groups in fact in places like and people are really torn because they'll simultaneously say wouldn't it be lovely if young people stayed or wouldn't it be love came back and then they'll say well but there's nothing for them to do here so they should go because it would be a waste of time and a waste of their life for them to come back to productive um, productive work and they wouldn't have uh, have as good a life so I think again <laughs> it's back to my point about China I just think this is a big question that we don't know the answer to and in truth we drive the answer to that I think uh, this new ministerial team are very skills and apprenticeship policy and are less sympathetic to the movement of students around the kind of residential universities if they manage to therefore exercise their will we might see more people studying um, or kind of huge boom up in the next few years so we have to think about what that but it is you know the purpose of good data is not that it always allows us to tell us it's that it gives us the ability to interrogate and ask the right question and that's why it's really really important and valuable to have so that's all we've got time for this week. Remember to dig deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com. Remember, you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show on Acast, Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or wherever else you listen. And to keep you and where you work ahead of everything going on in UKHE, do pop over to the website to find out more about our subscriptions. So thanks very much to uh, Lucy, Jonathan, uh, Michael, everyone at Team Wonky that helps make the show happen. And until next week, stay wonky. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.